Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade, recording here at Mike's house uh, on a Thursday evening. Uh, We're going to be having an episode after this, so we're trying to kill two birds with one stone. But we're here today to to kind of wrap up the church history series we've been doing it with the Winging It. We uh, have gone up through the Enlightenment. That was the last uh, released session. And we are leaving off where we're leaving off for a couple reasons. Uh, First, we're getting further and further away from my main field, unless we make a, a big jump here to the 20th century. But also, secondly, we want to leave an opening to maybe have another series later where we look at American Lutheranism uh, or maybe uh, 20th century theologians, things of this sort. And so we're going to leave off with the Enlightenment, but we wanted to kind of round out the series, um, having gone through it ourselves, uh, working through the Knoll book. Uh, Mike is now teaching the Luther course this semester. I've had the history of the Reformations, and so we've definitely been thinking a, a lot about church history to kind of have a wrap-up of uh, maybe some of the value of the things we've looked at, but especially uh, maybe to answer that question, why church history? If you haven't listened to one of these winging it's yet, maybe this will be a reason if you listen to to want to go back, and uh, we're by no means authoritative in everything we've said on all of these, but to consider why it's valuable for us as Christians to consider the past. Um and I guess, Mike, I'll start off with one reason, if that's okay, and then and then I'll throw it to you. And I think, hopefully, kind of putting you on the spot here, hopefully you can unpack it for uh, our listeners, too, because this is something I think you handle when you talk about apologetics. But I think the, the first thing to remember as Christians of the value of studying church history uh, is that the Christianity itself is historical in a way that... Uh, most, if not all, other religions are not. Um, when Quirinius was governor in Syria, and I just saw a news story today about a, a ring now that they think was Pontius Pilate's ring that they found, um, and it would have been used for, for sealing official proclamations, uh, right? Crucified under Pontius Pilate, we confess in the creed. Um, places and times where events took place, um, we have a God who himself has come into history and then worked through history for the good of his church. And maybe if we could just start there, Mike, and I know you've talked about this sometimes in the past, but maybe to bring everything together in one wing in its session, anything you would like to unpack with that uh, Christianity in and of itself necessitating the study of history because of its historical nature? Yeah, two points. One is the incarnation. So that is going to uh, distinguish Christianity from just about every other religion. You know, some religions have this idea of God, man kind of thing, but it's not it's not really the same. It's it's maybe uh, the gods uh, dipping their toes or their pinkies into the into the world, taking on some different forms. But um, the incarnation is different. And of course, the incarnation has to do with not just Christology, but ultimately our salvation. I, I use the example of uh, in class, I hold up a marker and I say, oh, look at this marker. What a moral marker this is. It never cheated on its wife and never stole. Well, it's a marker, right? So if God comes down here and um, never sinned, you're like, big deal. It's God. But if God is 100% human and the person Jesus Christ and is still and is still sinless, then it kind of counts and I need it to count for me, his, his righteousness for me. And so right there, uh, it's an incarnational religion. Um, <clears throat> The, you know, maybe, maybe it's going to be now three points, but, uh, the other thing is that, the the physical is good, right. By the incarnation. And so he redeems history. He redeems time in a certain sense. Um, but apologetically, it's very important because these are actually facts on the ground so they can be proven or disproven. And so, uh, just first Corinthians 15 is just the ultimate example of that, of St. Paul saying, you show me the dead body. I'm paraphrasing here. If you show me the dead body of Christ, then, then all is lost. Um, this is factual stuff. And so the, the reason why that is so powerful apologetically is that just about every other religion can say, here's my religion, it's good. And the skeptic can say, okay, but is it true? Well, other religions are not going to even attempt to say, is this true in the sense of factual, historical, um, can't, do we have empirical evidence for these facts? It's, it's not necessarily a, a criticism of them, like they can't do it, because they don't even try to do it. 
It's just not their, it's just not their goal. And so Christianity is quite different because it's saying, okay, we can investigate these things. Um, and that's just so huge when it comes to apologetics. A part of that then too is, uh, not to get too much on apologetics, but uh, the, the apologetic task is often trying to get the skeptic to play fair in a certain sense, to look at the facts of the Christian worldview, for lack of a better word, uh, the claims of the uh, historical resurrection, the all of these kinds of things. Just treat this fact as you would any other fact. Let's have a, a level playing field. It doesn't get somebody to faith, but it sure knocks down uh, uh, the the natural skeptics um, reaction to that, which is that's religion. And so it doesn't really count. And that's, that's a game changer uh, on a lot of different levels. We can go off on that for quite a bit, um, but we'll move on, uh, on to uh, uh, history a little bit here. Um, and then you brought up, uh, you know, maybe we found a ring uh, signet for, from Pontius Pilate. Archaeology is the best friend to Christianity um, because there may be ups and downs where there's a theory about there. Oh, we found a we found an inscription that proves that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, whatever. Okay, uh, but overall, the trajectory of archaeology proves the historical facts of Christianity. And and quite frankly, if you were making up a religion, if you were going to make up something mystical, if you were going to lie, you don't put in details like Quirinius was governor of Syria. That has no point to the story of Jesus Christ, other than to say this actually happened and it's verifiable. And I, I'm convinced that archaeology um, um, will continue to verify um, these things. Um, there'll be ups and downs, and, uh, of course, but um, ultimately it's factual. And so it's going to be proven factual if people are honest with their investigations. I think if we can maybe move on to another area of the value of church history, and I have a few jotted down, and I'm sure Mike, you'll have thoughts on this because it plays in liturgically, but would be the reminder that as we confess in the creed and Christianity in a very real way, and I thought Dr. Brown had a nice sermon on this today in chapel. You should post that one. Yeah, I'll have to remember to link it. Um, on the now and then aspect of the church, and he was talking about Revelation chapter 20, but it's an important reminder that as we confess in the creed, that we are part of a communion of saints. Um and so that, I think there's a number of things that come with that, and maybe we can unpack it, but we are not um, part of a different church than those who have gone before us in the faith, but we are part of one and the same church with those who have gone before us in the faith. We are not of a, a now new faith, you know, that's had to adapt to new times, but we have one and the same faith because that faith they had um, is the faith we have in Christ. I have a chapel Monday, Mark, or Mike, you have it tomorrow, um, but Monday I have, they gave me an easy text, uh, John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Right, it's not that I faith... have various verses from Revelation 7 <laughs> and 20. I've got softballs this semester, so I can't complain. And uh, But what does that remind us? We can think of, well, as we've looked at church history, we've seen... The Wesleys, we've seen Thomas Aquinas, all these different ages with all their different emphases or challenges or things to which they respond. But in the end, every Christian's faith was the same in that Christian faith, saving faith, is faith in Christ. And and Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I think there's a number of things in that they're important for us to remember with the communion of saints. And so before, uh, I've been learning how to produce episodes, and so I've had to listen to them and then click back through. And I thought to myself the other day, I talk a lot. Like, I'd click on a few things so I could hear the different voices, and it'd be like, my voice, my voice, and I'm just randomly clicking. So one of the things I want to do besides uh, heavy breathing into the mic like this, <sighs> and uh, hitting the mic, I think the only person who hits the mic more than me is Dr. Brown, um, is to throw things to you guys. So maybe, Mike, what comes to mind for you, the importance of church history and the communion of saints? Oh, there's so many things. Uh, I'd first start with maybe one that people don't really think about, but that's diversity. Um, not just diversity uh, 
racially so that you know the the connection between coptic christians the early syrian christians the north african christians the chinese christians today and we've talked about this and we won't go further in there but the 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 historic western right what a beautiful connection there is that on the same sunday i may be speaking the same prayer prayers and hearing the same readings as people um from a completely different background but another thing with diversity um is to see some of the saints' days in the church calendar. Um, we tend to, as Lutherans, kind of shun that because it's Roman Catholic, and certainly we want to be careful as how we uh, uh, look at the saints. Um, but they're a part of the history. They're a part of our history, um, even the ones that um, weren't Lutheran. And they're important to remember because we see a couple of things. One, we see people that are often worse sinners than us. I've always thought, you know what? I'm better than Abraham. I mean, I'm not that whatever, but I didn't throw my wife under the bus like he did in Egypt, you know? And so Abraham, who is a, an example of faith in Hebrews 11, that the whole point is that God used a fool like that and God saved a fool like that. It's not really so much honoring these people in their purity it is honoring God for what he did for them. And that, that's one reason why we should do that. Second reason is that time, God becoming man in time, means that time is good. He has redeemed time for us. And there's a flow of time. There's a flow in the year from the seasons, from going to school and summer vacation. Go ahead. And, and just, I've been reading some pretty interesting stuff lately. And Along that, as you say time, Mike, I think what you even mean by this is not just time chronologically, chronos, but the Greek, right, also kairos, the the proper time, these periods as well. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and what a beautiful thing that is to not just have a rhythm of the year, the seasons, and here's here's tax day, and then, you know, before that there was Valentine's Day, before that there was the Super Bowl, but that there's a spiritual time frame, you know, Advent, then to uh, Epiphany, then to Lent, and we follow the life of Christ. I see uh, Wittenberg in the fifth, just that God sees these times, and just as he does with the church here, he does throughout the ages, uses when it's right, he does the thing. And we have a great prayer in our prayer book, and I don't know if it's on all Lutherans or if it was just the Wisconsin Synod hymnal, but uh, the appointed uh, general prayer, prayer of the Church for Reformation. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. When the time had fully come, this. When the Kairos, time, Kairos, Kairos, Kairos. Yeah, and then when the time had fully come, he rose up the rep, and then may it be in this time or whatever. Oh, just one of my my most favorite uh, uh, prayers of the church that um, whoever produced it, I don't know who did. Probably John um, Stray if he's listening. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's really beautiful language there too. But I'm not saying that we should go back to where we have a saint. We, we recognize a saint every day. I think if you're a history buff, that's kind of cool. Like you have the little calendar that, you know, yeah. you rip off, um, uh, you know, the far side comic, whatever, yeah. you know, maybe one year get a church history one if they make such a thing. But to broaden that just a little bit more um, and to appreciate uh, w- what God has done through history. So in my worship class, I said, is anybody, we were talking about this. I said, does anybody know when Lutheran artist day is, you know, no, I don't know. Well, it's April 6th. What a great time for that day. Just to think about it's, it's Lucas chronic and, and Albert Durer are, are recognized on that day. And then I, I said, how many of you think that women haven't been treated very well in the church? You know, um, most of them didn't raise their hand because they were embarrassed. But, <clears throat> and I said, last week at, at this time was the, the week before um, was Saint Liz- Elizabeth of Hungary Day. Do you know who she is? I do. Yeah, yeah. I asked. She was them. at the Wartburg, and yeah, it's I, ironically for a vocation guy, uh, she leaves her children behind to go right, right, <laughs> practice right. work righteousness. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I'm not defending all of her actions. Okay. I was just making the point because it happened to be that week that here is some women of history, whether we agree with the theology or not, who did some great things. You know, and and to say, you you when if you want examples of female faithfulness in the church, which I think is great. I mean, Saint Paul talks about Sarah. I mean, we, certainly we should talk about Mary and all those things. Um, there's other ones that you're missing. And when you pull that kind of 
stuff out of our look at history, you become less and less diverse. And so history really allows us to be more diverse in a, in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and the way I kind of explain it is, imagine a timeline. Here's the beginning of time, Jesus Christ in the center, we're over on this side. And if you're kind of only thinking about contemporary, you know, the old is bunk, uh, history is stupid, and, and old and stodgy, and, and the, the, uh, the implication there is that history is not diverse and that we need to break away from that. Well, if you take that little slice of time, your lifetime right here, and the, you know, let's say even the foreseeable future of your lifetime, that's a very, very small slice of this huge timeline that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And so history is um, the person who wants diversity, um, their greatest friend in a lot of different ways. And so to see, and, and we talked about this throughout the series, is to be charitable to these people, to be charitable to um, the Wesley brothers, even though we're gonna disagree with them, be charitable to um, Augustine and, uh, you know, all those Tertullian. Augustine, yeah. 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 Uh, were they brothers or they think they're <laughs> twins, right? Augustine and Augustine. Uh, yeah. Um, so there, that's one of the major benefits of just looking at history and appreciating it and you learn from their mistakes, but you also, you're also more apt to criticize yourself. Uh, today in class, I'm, I'm trying to remember the example that, Oh, I was talking about how uh, maybe the move towards music today in the church is less and less about congregational singing and more about, you know, whether it be a band or some more complicated music that really leaves behind the congregation in the dust because it's, it's, it's too hard to sing some of these songs and, and kind of making a case that hymns are good because, you know, maybe if you don't like the tune, you could probably manage it. It's, it's, it's in a form, you know, and, and we were going through the history of music, and I made the point that in the medieval period, music became much more complicated and uh, much more beautiful, maybe, in a certain sense. But congregational hymn singing decreased as the professional choir increased, which brought up beautiful, great music. But it was the Reformation that brought congregational singing back. And I said, now that I look at maybe more Protestant music and it's the congregation becomes more of an observer than a participant in that. I say, I've seen this story before because I know the history of this. And so just watch yourself here a little bit. Let's not repeat these same mistakes. And I think along those lines, when we remember we're a part of a communion of saints, um, this is especially true of Christians, but this is also true of every individual. Um, the, the past is never in the past. Right, it. Um, you're never going to escape the past because our present is the product of it. Um, if you think of your own, it's very life, existential of you. Like the, you know, there's no such thing as, as as mankind. It's just all of our <laughs> actions that bring about. You know <laughs> that I I'm carrying all of the world's uh, um, choices in the world. Universe. Yeah, <laughs> but think about it in your own life. Uh, you have a last name. You have DNA. Um, you had a childhood. Your childhood, in many ways, was reflective of your parents' childhood, which was reflective of their parents' childhood. Um, you grew up in a certain socioeconomic class, um, in a place in which people of that class in that place had certain lifestyles, traditions. Um, you probably grew up in a community, unless you were in a brand new suburb um, that had been around for quite some time. How you think of a neighborhood looking, or a city looking, or a town looking, or a church looking, or a pastor looking, or a pulpit looking, uh, is, is in many ways come from that. Uh, your past really has shaped who you are today. We recognize that as Americans um, when we see the importance of therapy, right? You have to go to therapy to, in many ways, deal with or get over your past. We recognize that when it comes to cycles of poverty, that few people are poor solely because of their own decisions. We recognize that uh, as well when it comes to um, education, uh, that that the past is going to play into the present. And so where we are now is very much rooted in the past. And if we want to understand 
the best and the worst of that, of our heritage, then we have to, to dig into it. If we want to understand our blind spots, then we have to dig into it. Even if we want to understand our language, our language is shaped by the past, right? English is a language that has developed over centuries, and there are words in it, and there aren't words in it because of the past, right? There's other languages that have all sorts of words for concepts that we don't have because of where that language developed. And the same is true with the church, which has its own year, which in many ways has its own language. Uh, these are things that grew over time. And this is where also, this is not to speak against change, but I think to, to maybe second a bit of what you were saying, Mike, when we bring new things in, we are, whether we realize it or not, making a judgment on our past and adopting something that has its own past. Nothing comes out of a vacuum. Um, I was reading something interesting the other day that talked about how originally in England and America, Christians were very leery of the theater because the theater would depict um, aspects of humanity and things people do that were thought to be unseemly. But over time, especially in America, when you saw revivalist preachers, they realized they could adopt some of the style of the theater so that preachers began to preach in a way that looked a lot like an actor on stage, um, both physically and um, with, uh, you know, the, um, what do you call it, the affectation of their voice. Well, eventually that also affected buildings so that buildings, and I'm not talking 20th century even, began to have more of a theater-type style when where church was gathering. <clears throat> well, adopting that in our day is bringing in something that has a history. It's not bringing in something that doesn't. Uh, you mentioned the Wesleys, so we study the Wesleys. And there's a lot to be commended in the Wesleys. I mean, their recognition that the common people needed the gospel as much as everyone else, that clear teaching and good pastoral care wasn't necessarily getting to them, uh, their desire for missions obviously is very commendable. Um, I was at uh, went to church. Um, he was going to be able to come on tonight, but he wasn't able to do so. After all, something came up. But uh, Kent Schaff is the new one of the new Missouri Synod pastors in the area, and a friend of mine. So I joked, uh, my family and I, we went the other day and to see the new Missouri hotshot in the heart of Wellsdom. And uh, I will say, just a fantastic sermon. And the 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 service closed. Um, with a Wesley hymn, and it, the LSB must have a different tune or melody than Christian worship does, and very powerful, and those words with that melody, with that organist, right? Um, I'm very thankful that we had that legacy, because taking that in, right, was something that sunk home some wonderful gospel words, but, uh, you know, we're, we're never going to escape where things come from, and so I think that's a helpful reminder as well. And that means in our own past, too, there's things to look at and say, maybe that came out of a situation that doesn't apply anymore, or maybe that came out of not the best situation. Um, Maybe that's not something that we ought to uh, continue any longer as we we look at that. Um, Or there's other things that in the past maybe were significant issues because of their context that need not be as significant or divisive of of issues today. I think with that too, connecting with this is the ability to better understand the scriptures and the creeds and the writings of church history by understanding the context of it. And uh, in one of the books I've been reading lately, they had a a pretty cool account of when Jesus says in Revelation about the Laodiceans being lukewarm, so he's going to spit them out. And so he says, I wish you were either hot or cold. And now, in 21st century America, Mike, we hear hot and cold, and which one's the good one that we think we're supposed to be? Hot. Yeah, on fire for for Jesus. And they talk about in history, interestingly, uh, Laodicea did not have any um, cold water springs, right? They had to build aqueducts to bring water in, and the two towns they brought it in from was one was from Colossae, um, and then the other one was um, from Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for its um, hot water springs. So think of hot springs, Arkansas. And they'd bring that water in. Colossa was known for, for its cold water springs. It was, I guess, apparently somewhat renowned for its cold water. 
Well, they'd bring them in by aqueduct, and by the time it didn't matter if it was the hot water or the cold water being brought in, by the time it got there, what was it? It was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. So what what's being said there is cold is good too. Hot or cold is good. Right? Cold, think of the refreshment of the gospel. But you wouldn't understand that unless you understood the history. The same is true if we're thinking of Luther or any age of history, if we're thinking of the creeds. The, the language and the things that people emphasized had a context. And uh, the, um, you know, the antinomian disputations where Luther reacts to Agricola and Agricola saying, you don't need the law anymore in the Christian life. And this is really the debate, does the Christian still need the law? And Luther's going to say, of course you need the law because we're sinner saints, but we're, we're sinners, um, so you need it for the sinner. And he chides Agricola and he says, you forget before we had terrified conscience and no gospel but now we've got some gospel and consciences that know no terror. And you can see how in a short span of time the context had changed, how much more over centuries, so that we we sometimes miss the importance of what actually is being taught or was taught then or what was fought for if we don't look back into the context of um, of what brought that about. I don't know if you have anything yeah, for no. that, Mike. No, I think that that's good. I maybe add a few things that are a little bit different. Um, the snobbery of the contemporary is a problem. Um, and part of the problem there is not only do are not only are you intolerant, less diverse, even though you're, you're under the guise of diversity and tolerance and change, um, time keeps marching. So once you make a change, guess who's in the past? You are. And I think about if we, there's two problems. One is, and this is typically American, but... And And you sounded very Kierkegaardian there. Kierkegaardian, the the concept of anxiety says, part of the problem with studying the present is it's the past the moment you study it. Yeah, and um, two two problems, and then I'll kind of put them together. One is especially in, in America and in the, in the, just the modern period in general is, okay, the past doesn't have anything to teach us. But in the Christian view, because we have the gospel in the New Testament, we're always trying to get back to this perfect time, the apostles time, right? And as if there was nothing good that happened for 2000 or 1900 years, we have to get from the time of the apostles, as if the apostles had no problems to deal with, right? And uh, so there's there's that little bit of a snobbery there, like we're pure, like the apostles. The second snobbery is, like you said, uh, um, you, you kind of start thinking yourself a little bit pure because you're not going mis- to make the mistakes of the previous generation. Well, it becomes very quickly that you are then the next generation. And because you're holding on to that, your so-called purity, um, you, you start you end up not having the ability to change in the future very quickly. And you then hold on to this kind of piety um, where nothing from uh, nothing from 1850 before was pure, except for a few, few, uh, a few years in Germany in 1500. And we have this, this pure gospel here. And then you, you're not able to adapt you're not able to change. You're not able to take criticism because you're holding on to your own purity and you haven't really, you haven't put, you haven't vetted your thought through the, uh, the process of, of comparing it to, to history, right? So I say something that I think is great and that's so much better than what they said in 1770, whatever. And you haven't really vetted it through all of history and you hold on to that and you become exactly what you hate holding on to something just because you're holding on to it. Uh, maybe take a, take a left turn here a little bit. And this is a little bit apologetic, but it's also how we can talk to each other as, as Christians too. Is, um, so in our Luther class right now, you know, students at WLC are not all Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, of course, and have a wide variety in the in the Nor Luther the, class. Uh, theology professor. Yeah. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, depends on the day. Um, so as as these these students are choosing their topic, I meet with them, and then I meet with them after they they put in their they give me their final paper, and then I make them rewrite whatever needs to be rewritten. So I meet with them twice, and so I have a good handle of where they grew up. Uh, what religious background they came from. And 
I don't say to the Methodist, I want you to do this. I let them come to me. And then, so I had a Methodist girl, very good student, very faithful. And my goal is not to make her Lutheran. She's just fine Christian. And we're going to solidify the doctrine of justification by grace alone. And she gets it. And she's like, well, I was thinking about doing something with the Wesleyans you know, and I heard there was a connection there. I'm like, she's like, what do you think? I'm like, you absolutely have to do this. You absolutely have to do this as a Methodist and talk about how, um, you know, the, the preface to the Galatians and preface to, to Romans that Luther wrote affected the Wesleyan, but you got to do that. And so there was a connection there and we could have this discussion. Then she wrote a very nice paper, um, and being fair, being fair, both to, to Luther, but being fair to her tradition too, of kind of playing this out as a beautiful moment where we could connect as two Christians. And, and then I have, um, I have, um, uh, a young gal who, who's, uh, Muslim. I don't think very, not necessarily kind of devout Muslim, but certainly she shared with me, that's how she grew up. And out of the blue, she's like, I kind of want to do Aristotle and Luther. And I said, you have to, because this is connects you to your, 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 your faith here a little bit here. And so, uh, she wrote a pretty for a college student. That's a sophomore <laughs> that took takes on Aristotle and Luther. It was, it was pretty good. You know, I mean, there's, that's a tough, tough, tough thing. And, and, and she was fair with Christianity and it's, use and sometimes misuse of Aristotle and with her own tradition too. There was a connection there that otherwise probably would not have been made if it wasn't for our study of history. Yeah. And I, I think you, uh, that, that always is a fun class when I teach as well. I mean, we do get really good papers. It, it's undergrad papers. I don't expect, you know, a, a PhD paper, but it is fun to see people engage with those topics um, another one I had down here is we recognize in our personal lives the importance of human experience. Uh, you know, increasingly students after high school want a gap year to go do uh, um, travel, experience things. We, uh, we want to have life experiences. Oftentimes when we're seeking out someone for advice, we want someone who's been through that thing before. Um, if you're going through some hardship, uh, imagine you lost a child. Uh, you're oftentimes going to connect with someone who knows what that is like. And if we neglect church history, we're really robbing us ourselves of a huge swath of the human experience. Um, what history in general is, but especially church history is in many ways, uh, the chronicling of human experience. And there's much we can learn from uh, there's fellowship we can find, camaraderie, but also wisdom in looking at the experience of of the past. Uh, times have changed. Um, you know, if you think of antiquity, a uh, book I need to reread, um, but from shame to sin, and it kind of looks at the view of sex and the Roman world and how it changed with Christianity. But we can talk about um, how in some cultures, a more communal culture, you can really have an honor-shame system, right? And, and Paul's doing that when he talks about, on, and Jesus is doing this, on the last day, everything will be disclosed. Well, to us, we hear that and we go, okay, yeah, that kind of stinks. You know, I'll be embarrassed. But if you're looking at it from the standpoint of shame, an honor-shame culture, and we see this play out you know, all, all across the world, um, that can be a very different concept. Um, so you can have things like that that, that shift somewhat. We tend to view things more individually, and as Lutherans especially so, the individual conscience, um, faith as an individual thing. But there's also in the scriptures and throughout church history, and still today, um, places where the emphasis is on the communal aspect. And so I can find an important corrective for myself, but also those places, those times have a corrective in us that... uh, the faith applies in both those situations, and there's things to be learned from how the faith applies. And so I think... Uh, and then you have the ability to talk to people from other cultures. I, there's a great story about John Kleinig, and I won't go through through it all, but uh, his work in Southeast Asia with that shame culture there, and um, uh, a woman that had, had been abused, and she felt violated and dirty, 
and there was great shame, even though she was not the one who committed this sin. And that, that concept of cleanness and uncleanness, Mm -hmm. which we have no, and we just Mm -hmm. don't have really much of a parallel in, in, in American society helped him minister to this, to this gal. And, and I think, um, if we're honest, those people who have been sexually abused in America, there's a connection there. And, and you really, again, you're more diverse when you know the different cultures and history and the history and cultures of the New Testament, Old Testament. Yeah. And I mean, this is not just to aid you in pastoral care, as that clearly did, but the individual Christian going through it to wrestle with, wrestle through those things with the past. Um, I've got two left here. What are we at time-wise, Mike? 35 minutes. All right, we're doing all right. Um, one of the things I would add is to, uh, I got three things. I'm going to say the three. How does that sound? And then right. we can pick up any. <clears throat> um, to learn from even what they got wrong. I think sometimes studying the past, we think, oh, to learn what they got right. So we're going to read all the eras of church history where we, where we think they got everything right. Um, there was no age in church history, by the way, where they got everything right. Um, but to learn from what they got wrong. Um, I think to marvel at the preservation of the truth that we have, um, the extent to which the scriptures and the creeds, um, to to marvel that we go to church on Sunday and say the same words, maybe in a different language, that were said, you know, 17, 1800 years ago. Um, there's a real power in that to hear the same scriptures read that Christ unrolled the scroll of in the synagogue and, and read from, that the uh, that Philip explained to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then third, um, to remember never to take the gospel for granted. Um, to be reminded that there's times where the church isn't even necessarily doing something so much wrong, that is, it's teaching really biblical stuff, but it loses sight of the gospel. And perhaps that's when the church is the most dangerous, if I can even say so. Because it's not that the church is being unbiblical in that it's speaking falsehood, but it is being unbiblical in that it forgets the beating heart, what enlivens the scriptures, and as Jesus says, these are they who testify about me. So I will throw those three at you, Mike. Learn even from what they got wrong, the preservation of the truth we have, and then remember never to take the gospel for granted. Go where you want to go. Yeah, first of all, what came to mind is our, well, it was a long time ago when we recorded it, but I just think it came out legalism among us. I mean, that's the whole point, that you can have everything right, but if you're not preaching the gospel and and not preaching about the gospel, but preaching the gospel, then uh, that reminds me of St. Paul. You know, you're just a resounding gong. You're just, you're just making noise and you're annoying the rest of us. And if someone is preaching the gospel, even for not good reasons, then you rejoice as he says to the Philippians. Right. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, I'd rather be in the place that has a few false doctrines and preaches the gospel than has everything correct, but doesn't comfort me. I mean, quite frankly, that's, and I think that's, uh, a warning to us. Uh, when you talked about, you know, uh, uh, seeing that, uh, seeing throughout history that the gospel still prevails and, uh, the, the stuff that you were talking about, I, I kept thinking of the word perspective, you know, this perspective that first of all, all, all is not loss. All right. I, I realize that the church is messed up and that it's a tough time right now. But this martyr talk in the American church uh, and we I get that all the time. I think I grew up with that. Like, you know, oh, the world hates you. And if you the it, what was us. Yeah. And like you, the, the sermon, the evangelism sermon that says, oh, it's going to be so tough to speak your faith is probably the the probably kept me from speaking my faith right? Like, oh, you're, it's, it's, people are going to laugh at you and so like, nobody's laughing at me. Uh, nobody's laughing at me. Very I rarely. I haven't had a single God's not dead moment. <laughs> yeah, very rarely. I mean, very rarely do I, I had a couple people that were like, oh, I'm not religious because, you know, um, all religions are, are, uh, you know, corrupt or whatever like that and stuff. But those were pseudo intellectual arguments or, or excuses very rarely do we talk about there's real martyrs out there you know and and then to see in history some real dark periods where the gospel has been very much obscured even in 
dominant Christian culture and to say, you know, usually in a dominant Christian culture is when that happens. And you know what? God pulled them out of that, you know? And then the flip side is don't take the gospel for granted that it can be gone in a second. And, uh, yeah, you don't really get that when you're con when you're, when your only context is we used to be Christian in the 1950s. Now it's changing. So we better change. Hold on for a little bit. Let's first of all, not, 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 uh, spray martyrs blood all over us. But second of all, um, uh, maybe the fault was with us a little bit and not just the culture changing kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, this is, um, it's interesting whenever that challenge comes, you know, times have changed and you, you always have two impulses and they're both wrong. One is the accommodationist view. And so this is what happens, um, with, uh, liberal Christianity, you know, in the 1800s and and early 1900s of, you know, well, the historical critical method has really undermined the historicity of all these things. And so Barth, you know, or Bart, however you want to say it, who's a conservative is going to say, you know, um, well, we're going to kind of just take this out of the realm of um, all that matters is the gospel itself. And we're not going to rest. We're not going to argue about the historicity uh, in an objective way of these things. Then you're going to have Boltman who who goes even further, and this is where we get into more trouble, although I'm sympathetic to Boltman in some ways in that he, he does recognize the importance of preaching, but, um, you know, who's going to say, well, we need to demythologize, and at the end of the day, what's still going to matter is proclamation of faith. Um, Barth is going to hold on better in that at least Barth, for all the things he gets wrong, gets this gospel message as the kernel is the core, and holds to the historicity, even if he's willing to not go into fights over the historicity of everything, to the historicity of the death and resurrection of Christ. But that kind of, even Boltman is reacting to a tradition that starts to say, well, now we can't trust this, now we can't trust that. And Christianity becomes all these, we're gonna, so this is where the, the push to study world religions originally comes from, because we're going to find the common things in religion that Christianity is the best at. So we'll be able to say Christianity is the best at it. And then you end up with, well, where do we see much of mainstream Protestantism today that um, inherited that? It's really languished and lost its reason for existing because political advocacy can be done well whether or not you have a cross on top of your building. Um, but you have the, the opposite impulse the, the, to go the other way, and um, I didn't set this up well, but which would be the, the fundamentalist route which is to now shut yourself off um, and you are you are going to, um, everything outside the fortress is threat. And so we're going to be on lockdown and you really miss out on a lot of stuff. A, you're hurting yourself, but B, you also miss out on a lot of, a lot of opportunities to serve your neighbor. So you're not only harming yourself, but you're harming others because of your failure to engage um, and and we've seen this with reactions to science sometimes, um, where we we have colleagues that I know we treasure, who are able to engage in marvelous ways through through their um, their research and what they do in the sciences, and uh, and to say God created the world, all the stuff that we can study about the wonders He's done, um, that's something you don't want to lose. You don't want to be shut off from being able to have intellectual pursuits that God gave you your mind um, to engage in philosophy and history. And so both impulses in the end are unhealthy. Now, which one lasts? The fundamentalist will last longer because at least the fundamentalist understands we have to have something to be about. We have to have a reason to exist apart from someone else. But both of those can be dangerous. And I think we see that as you, you, you got at. When we study church history, we see that neither of those ends up very well. And then just one brief thing in connection, I think an important thing you raised that someone might not recognize how important it is, is that after the Reformation or at the time of the Reformation, the Reformed tended to look at church history and see a big gap where there just wasn't the gospel. It was just, you know, papal tyranny. The Middle Ages were just wasted time. If you look at what Lutherans did when they studied church history, they didn't give any less attention to the Middle Ages than they did um, to early church history. And um, 
Luther, for instance, can very much appreciate, um, oh, why am I drawing a blank? That He's always pictured with the cross. Unfortunately, also was very Marian and preached the Crusades, but not Benedict. Um, uh, uh, oh, Sacred Head Now Wounded. Thomas Kempis? No, the author, um, the, the hymn. Uh, Paul Gerhardt, who redid. Gerhardt, uh, Chand- Tran- Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard. Translates it from Bernard of Clairvaux. Right, Luther loves Bernard's sermons. Um, when Flacius does his church history, he's showing, look, here's the gospel preached in the Middle Ages. Yes, it wasn't everywhere it could be, and yes, it maybe wasn't as clear, but he, God kept his promise. Here's the church. Um, it, he oftentimes did this by, you know, pointing out people were calling the Pope the Antichrist already. Then. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we recognize that God was still at work, um, even when it's the remnant and... and uh, and so, you know, even if we're going to be alarmist in our own day, um, we recognize that the church is never with, without God. And that gives, I hope, a confidence to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, the church ought to have a confidence. It, not, it ought not operate from a place of fear. Um, that fear really strips us of our opportunity um, to rejoice in the gospel, but also to serve our neighbor through it. Yeah, I, I wish that God would have given us an example of that in the Old Testament prophet, like maybe Elijah or something like that, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of part of the story, right? Uh, that um, that where is everybody? Oh, there's a remnant. Don't worry about it. There's a remnant there, and uh, maybe quit feeling sorry for ourselves a little bit. And that, I think that goes to that perspective idea. Uh, just and, and then. Like you said, don't go to don't go the route of fear. Don't go to the route of complete accommodation either, right? right? And 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 uh, Gene Veet's good on this in his book Postmodern Times, where he points out, okay, so here's what it looks like if you accommodate to more of a liberal worldview, but here's how it looks like when you accommodate to more of a and what he putting words in his mouth a Christian right conservative thing, and uh, either one um, obscures the gospel a little bit, and it's all in the name of winning. Right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I just, and, and I, I know and winning the now, right. And I know you're winning, trying to win souls, but let's be honest too. You're trying to win other things too. Oh. And, uh, uh, when we're trying to win the world, I'm going to speak on this tomorrow in chapel. We're trying to win this world for Jesus who, by the way, are, it already has belongs to him mm. and has won it for us. Um, we start doing the ends justifies the means kind of thing. And in us versus them. Yep. And in us versus them. And then we're not really, we are less when, when we try so much to not be of the world, we inevitably not are not in the world. And so there's, there's, there's historical examples of that, that we can learn from, I think. And then I'm going to wrap up my talking here. And if you want to jump in, you can Mike, but. I just want to reiterate, as we've looked through all of this then, um, and if you've listened to our number of our episodes, you'll you'll know this is a common theme that comes up. But it, um, I've had a few people that in the last few months have reached out to me and kind of talked about how life is going for them. And in a number of these instances, I've heard them say, I don't know when the last time I heard the gospel was. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the gospel wasn't preached in church wherever they were going. And I'm not saying these are necessarily all Lutheran people even. Um, But it at least wasn't done so clearly enough that there was no way for them to miss it. Um, For you language. And not given with one hand and then taken away with the other. And I think if, if there's one thing I want us to take away from the study of church history... And it's the same thing that ought to be your takeaway from a study of the Old Testament, I would say, too, is how easily the message of the gospel gets taken for granted and lost um, or assumed that people know it. There is not a day where the most important thing you need to hear is the absolution. You may not recognize it's the most important thing you need to hear, and guess what? You're forgetting what Luther was after in the 95 Theses, which is repentance is a daily thing. Um, pastors listening, 
please never assume that your people understand the gospel. A, it's the hardest thing to understand because it's completely foreign to how we operate. And and B, always err on the side of giving it to them. Um, we see often throughout history, um, clergy becomes concerned about things that ought to concern them, but concern so much that they forget the absolution. And I look back and I can tell you, I don't know how many times I've done that in my own life as pastor, but also as parent, that's something I've really been thinking about lately, is how many opportunities I've let pass where I I ought to forgive, even if they think it's weird I'm forgiving them, Um, and to ask for forgiveness myself. And laity, if you're not hearing it, um, love your pastor enough, A, if you're comfortable to tell him, to just say, I'm not criticizing you, and maybe I'm missing it, um, but I would like you to give me the gospel. Have them absolve you on the spot if you got to. Um, But remind them how much you need that. But even more, um, find it, right? Uh, And that doesn't mean change your church or or whatever else. Um, There are good resources out there. Um, be in the scriptures, find the for you, get a good devotional, um, have good friends who get the absolution, um, but that none of us take that for granted. Um, you said, Mike, and I, I know I jumped in and I've been trying not to, but about, I especially absol- when I the church, you. yeah, especially when the church is dominant, even then it can lose the gospel. And I chimed in, but I think especially then mm-hmm. is when it loses sight of the gospel. And it's precisely because it's winning, as yeah. you said. You don't have to fight for the gospel anymore. You're fighting for other stuff. Right. And we are still pretty darn dominant as much as we might feel that we're. And so because we've been, we're so invested in the culture wars. We're so invested in America. We're so invested in um, what the standing we used to have. Which was, which was worthless. And if And if we're going to... If there's any reason we should exist, and if there's any reason people should listen to us, it's the absolution. Yeah, I was thinking about just this last week, the same exact thing where uh, somebody was talking about this controversy and that, and it was fine, you know, and how the church is going to figure this out and stuff. And I just wanted to say, you know what, and I should have said it. I just, do you know that our confessions say that, you know, confession absolution, if we lost that, it would be an abominable thing. And we let that happen. And we're worried about what? It, and, and this, just to fight off an accusation, this is not some form of gosh, gospel reductionism. Um, when, we, when Wade and I speak about, you know, I'd rather be in a church that speaks the gospel and has some false doctrine in it, rather than one that has all the false doctrine, but never actually, all the, right all the right doctrine, but never actually preaches the gospel and absolves me as a sinner. We're not saying those things don't matter. We're not, we're not being Barthian or, or anything like that. What we're saying is... <laughs> We don't want to be legalists. Right. And um, and if you think that we got everything pure, think again. Another um, uh, another lesson from church history, yeah. right? Um, uh, Luther said some boneheaded things. You know, we can, yeah. we can rightfully and criticize. And at the end of his life, he says he wants everything. He'd gladly have no, everything burned and, if and he could, he, except for bondage of the will and I think Galatians. And he knew it. Yeah. And he knew it. And we Augustine can. Augustine writes his retractions right, at the end of life. Right. I'm pretty sure Peter was wrong. It means, yeah. you, you know, I think Peter had some goofs there with yeah. that Paul pointed out, you know, uh, it, it's, it, you, if you're not, a, if, if you had to do one, if I had to do one thing over is I would have pushed for private confession and absolution earlier, instead of talking about, this is a good thing, trying to get it going and pushing that off. I just think about so many marriages that probably would have been better off if they just learned how to, the language of forgiveness, you know, and let alone all the guilt people were carrying around that, that I, that, that I should have absolved. I should have put myself in that position and uh, was concerned about other things. And I, I wish along those same lines, I've often thought, I wish I would have just ambushed people with the absolution more often too of, you know, just in the middle of someone talking about something and trying to work through and just have gotten to the point, you know, une- unexpected, but hey, you know what? Yeah. Maybe even, you know, Nastigan's always great for these stories of, of the, the story of him on the plane with this guy <laughs> who he stands up in the middle of the flight and, and absolves. But 
you know, just to to give that to people, even when they re- precisely when they don't realize that's what they're getting at, what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I think uh, yeah, it we see already at Luther's time, and I'm not going to plug my own book, but this is largely what an uncompromising gospel is about. Luther dies, and they're fighting about the very heart of the gospel and and justification. Um, this has always been the case. One of Paul's earliest epistles is Galatians. And he has to get right to the core. You know, um, it's not simply Corinthians where he has to get to all the parish issues. Right to the heart and core of his teaching. Um, and so I think a value of studying church history is to realize that's not going to change. Um, Bo Geertz has a great line in Hammer of God where he says, revivals were always bad for the children. And... You know, parents get caught up and we know the gospel and so now revival, we're going to be living for Christ and we're going to have this holy life. And uh, and pietism did that, we saw, and it produces, right, a Nietzsche and a Kant. You know what, neither of them were very devout Christians. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, church history reminds us, you get too caught up in now because you think you're fighting for the future you get too caught up, and now you're losing the future. Mm-hmm. Um, the future is in the absolution. If you assume the gospel, then your children are going to assume the gospel, and I think we see that over and over again. And they're going to despise the church because they're going to not understand why it exists. They're going to be like, what? And then, and then all they see is these pitily little fights. And why we've said over and over again that some of the greatest atheists came from very, very law-oriented Christian households yeah. lutheranism can do two things better than anyone else lutheranism makes the best atheists um nietzsche for instance mm-hmm. and lutheranism lutheranism makes the best methodists <laughs> sometimes it makes good lutherans but ex-catholics are the best yeah. lutherans right wade <laughs> That's true yeah all right well what do you say i i think we've probably uh hit on enough but i i do hope um i want to plug for the future and plug for the past um if you've enjoyed this winging it series great if you haven't enjoyed it don't tell anyone we want people to listen um, but if you jumped into this one, I'd really encourage you, I, uh, I think the most positive we get about things that we've done after the animal fights episodes, um, is the winging it series on the, the divine service, Mike. I, we get a lot of comments on that and we've thought about trying to, um, accumulate that in one place for people to find. Um, if you want another series, go check that one out. And I think we're pretty sure enough we're going to do it, Mike, that we can say it. But why don't you just briefly plug what we're hoping to do next so people know to look for it? Yeah, and I hopefully we can get on it right away and, and not put it off. But we would like to do a series on the life of Luther. And we're literally going to start uh, at his birth. And we're just going to see how far we get in a half an hour, 45 minutes, and just keep plugging away until we get sick of it or he dies. And um, I, I think it'll be a really good one because... A, this church history one was fast and furious, jumping over huge swaths of history. And we were talking about things that somehow we knew about, uh, maybe had even read extensively in, but there were sometimes either of us were like, yeah, we're winging it, literally winging it here. But uh, uh, Wade definitely has a good handle on Luther. I'm getting a little bit more into Luther now having to teach the class. And so I think it'll be really enjoyable. And I don't know if there's too much out there in the podcast world of, okay, here's just strict history of Luther. And so we're hoping to get that going. And uh, hopefully in the year 2019, early 2019, we'll start putting those up. And we, uh, once again, just to give it one last plug for this, we tried to largely use the outline of Turning Points by Mark Knoll. And uh, tentatively, we've talked about trying to use one biography kind of to set the outline for how we proceed with things with the winging nets for the Luther, um, Luther's life. Uh, Wade wants to do metastasis, right? No, no, <laughs> not at all. But, uh, you know, with, with the, the Luther year, there's about 20 I probably read that year that have come out that were, and many of them very good. But I think, Mike, if I'm correct, we're, we're looking at using Scott Hendricks, Martin Luther, Visionary Reformer, because we both use that for the Luther course as one of the texts. Yeah, I think so. And so if you are looking for a Luther biography and you think you're maybe going to want to follow along with us as we go, we're not going to be unpacking that text, but it'll kind of be a reference point for us. That might be one maybe you want to look up on Amazon, keep an eye and see if it goes on sale. 
easy, easy read, accessible, but I think um, uh, academic enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. So that being said, Mike, I've talked probably the most in this Wing and It series, so I'll let you wrap it up. There's nothing left to do but let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk. I'm just a drink. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. One more round won't get me down.